in a corrupt and broken world. Uh, last week we observed that every human being is sinful and sin affects every aspect of our being, our thoughts, our perspective, our inclinations, hopes and desires, even our capacity to love, everything. And collectively, sin has warped our understanding of power. Just think of the nations. A country is only considered powerful if it has the means to enact a huge amount of violence. It's no coincidence that the world's superpowers have huge militaries. Whether we like it or not, the world's understanding of power has a lot to do with force and the threat of force. And then there's power at an individual level. Think of a powerful person. Bring someone to mind. Who's the first person you thought of? A president? A king? A dictator? A business leader? Uh, almost certainly someone uh, rich and famous. We have a certain expectation of power that has been shaped by the fallen world in which we live and by the sin in our own hearts. When uh, human beings create gods, they do so according to this corrupt notion of power. And that's how we end up with the likes of Zeus, Jupiter, uh, Odin, who are capricious, violent, and self-interested. To some extent, this uh, warped view of power uh, can lead or at least contribute to an atheistic worldview. The atheist will challenge the believer where is God? Why can't we see him? In spite of the fact that we see his creation all around us. It's almost as if an all-powerful God would need to be big and loud and in your face, like the Greek, Roman, and Norse gods. I once had a, a very in-depth conversation with a, a friend of a friend, a, a very intelligent man. He had a scientific uh, background. Uh, we were talking about the existence of God. Uh, he was an atheist. And at one point in the conversation, and this really surprised me, uh, he said, if God is real, why doesn't he just take over every TV channel and uh, make it so that we couldn't possibly deny his existence? Well, an egoistic, power-crazed human being uh, might do that. It kind of sounds like the sort of thing that a Bond villain might do. Uh, but it would be a rather pathetic God who employed such a tactic. Again, the atheist will say, well, why does God allow, e allow evil? He must be powerless to stop it. But as we saw last week, evil exists within the heart of every human being. So how could God destroy evil without destroying every last one of us? And as Christians, we know that God doesn't want to do that. He loves us. Zeus, if he were real, might strike down everyone who doesn't conform to his will, but not God. It's like we, we want, and, and when, when I say we, I mean people in general, we want God to show up. We want God to put a stop to evil. We want God to make the world a better place. And we want him to do it in a way that conforms to our understanding of power. Well, God did show up. 
he enacted and is still enacting a plan that will ultimately put an end to all that is evil. And he did it in a way that would never occur to a corrupt and sinful world. God's methods of redeeming this world, of putting the world right, are in stark contrast to the world's understanding of power. And we see that so clearly in this passage. It begins with Caesar Augustus. He's the first to appear on this stage. Verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And in uh, 42 BC, Julius Caesar was deified by the Roman Senate. Uh, That is to say, they agreed that he was a god. This is the first time in history that a Roman citizen was deified. Ironically, Caesar was uh, officially declared god only after his death. And you might think that that might be a a bit of a hint that he wasn't god, the fact that he had, had died. But no one seemed to be bothered about that. And Caesar was given the title Divus Julius, or in English, Divine Julius. Anyway, in uh, 44 BC, Julius Caesar was assassinated, uh, uh, perhaps another clue that he uh, wasn't a god, and one Gaius Octavius was named in Caesar's, Caesar's will as his adopted son and heir. This is the very same Augustus Caesar that Luke refers to, and he actually carried the title Divi Filius, son of the divine. Or to put it another way, the Son of God. I'm sure that rings some bells. So in the western part of the empire, Augustus Caesar was being worshipped as a god, the Son of God, no less. Meanwhile, in a far-flung province in the east, a poor couple named Joseph and Mary were making their way to Bethlehem. Their journey was... Uh, actually made at a time of peace because Augustus Caesar's rule had brought a period uh, known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, uh, a period of relative uh, peace and stability throughout the empire, although that's only from a Roman point of view. Uh, But Augustus Caesar, this son of God who brought peace to the Roman world, was the epitome of worldly power. His peace relied on violence and the threat of violence. You see, the hope of the world is not in powerful men or people. The hope of the world is not even in good people. The hope of the world is in a good God acting on bad people. So what are this couple traveling on foot from Nazareth to Bethlehem, uh, Joseph and Mary, Well, in recent weeks, we've seen that they were poor. Uh, Mary was most likely illiterate, possibly Joseph too. They came from an obscure little town called Nazareth. No one thought very highly of Nazareth. And Mary was uh, pregnant out of wedlock, which meant that they were embroiled in a scandal. And they were traveling to Bethlehem to register for the census that Augustus Caesar had decreed a census is basically a a head count of everyone in the empire, uh, probably for the purposes of taxation. Uh, But isn't it amazing how God works under the radar? Caesar Augustus had declared a census 
of the entire Roman world, largely to consolidate his power. But in so doing, he was inadvertently moving God's plan forward because the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. As it says in Micah 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Augustus Caesar, this so-called son of God, takes center stage by ordering this census. Unbeknown to him, the real reason for this census is to move a pregnant teenage peasant girl from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that the Messiah, the Son of God, can be born there. And when the time came, Mary gave birth to Jesus in the most humble of dwellings, a place where at certain times of year animals would have been kept. She wrapped Jesus in cloths and she lay him in a manger, which is basically an animal's feeding trough, probably made of stone. Uh, very humble beginnings. But Jesus didn't happen to be born in those conditions. God chose for it to be this way. And that confounds our notions of power. In our world today, when the rich and the famous and the powerful come down to our level, in the most trivial ways, we think it's amazing. And uh, we take a huge amount of interest. I, I recently saw a video of the royals, William and Kate, uh, calling bingo numbers in a nursing home. And it was lovely to see such a revered and lofty couple being so uh, down-to-earth and normal. Uh, again, not long ago, I saw a picture of Angela Merkel. She'd been photographed doing her own shopping in a run-of-the-mill supermarket. Um, and the media applauded her for being so in touch with the lives and experiences of everyday people. And when a celebrity wears uh, an inexpensive item of clothing, uh, something that you and I might be able to afford, the media uh, are all over it. If Taylor Swift or someone like that, if they wear a, a dress that's been made by a high street fashion brand, it makes front page news. We are surprised and we find it somewhat endearing when the rich and the powerful do normal, everyday things. It's not what we expect. Well, the sovereign creator of the universe was born in a dark, dank, dusty, disheveled dwelling in a far-flung province of the Roman Empire. This is big news. God has shown up in the world that he created and he has shown up in a way that no one could have ever foreseen or anticipated or expected. And such an event needs to be celebrated. And it's the celebration of this event that we come to now as we look at the shepherds and the angels. In keeping with the humble nature of Jesus' birth, the first to be given this incredible, wonderful news is a group of shepherds out on the hillside. Shepherds were considered the lowest of the low, which is quite surprising because Israel's uh, greatest hero, King David, started life as a shepherd. <clears throat> as a shepherd, but later rabbinic writings describe shepherds as dishonest and untrustworthy uh, because of the nature of their job. They couldn't attend synagogue, 
uh, they, or, or keep the formal rules of washing and uh, cleanliness. And so they were pretty much outcasts. Uh, they weren't even allowed to give evidence in a court of law. That's how uh, mistrusted they were. They, they were. they were looked on with great suspicion. So why shepherds? Why were they the first to be told? Well, we know that God loves every person. As it says in Romans 2 verse 11, God does not show favoritism. However, God is particularly concerned for the poor, the downtrodden, the oppressed, the afflicted, the abused, the mistreated, because God is a God of justice and mercy and love. And of all the poor, humble people, who better to choose than a group of shepherds? Uh, Jesus is a messianic king in the line of David, and we know that David was born and was raised in Bethlehem. Uh, he became a king, but he started life as a shepherd. So who better to receive the good news first than a group of people who were following in King David's footsteps, tending their flocks in and around Bethlehem? Um, purely conjecture, but we don't know. They could have even been in the same spot where King David had once tended his sheep. And the angel declared, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Good news. Good news that will cause great joy for all the people. In the Roman world, the birth of Augustus Caesar was considered good news. In the 1800s, an inscription was found uh, in the, uh, the, the site of the ancient city of Priene, which is on the, the west coast of Turkey. And the, this, the inscription describes Augustus Caesar as a savior. And it says this about his birth. It says, the birth date of our God has signaled the beginning of good news for the world. That's talking about Augustus Caesar, that inscription that's been found. So we have this amazing contrast. Augustus Caesar, the so-called son of God, who through brute force achieved temporary and incomplete peace. The Pax Romana. And then we have Jesus, who will ultimately achieve total, absolute, and everlasting peace. And there was no force or coercion involved. In fact, the only force that was used was not used by Jesus, but against him. And by comparing these two figures, we see the difference between worldly power and God's power, true power. The heavenly host that appeared to the shepherds proclaimed glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace will come to all those who know and love Jesus. Nothing else can bring true and everlasting peace. The world has failed to understand power and so it has failed to learn that peace cannot be achieved through force or the threat of force. The world puts its trust in nations, charismatic leaders, 
governments, policies, laws, and ideologies. None of these things have the power to bring us peace. Only Jesus can do that. Many people genuinely ask, and I guess some atheists might mockingly ask, why doesn't God come in power to put the world right? And the answer is, he has. The problem is the world has misunderstood power. God is all-powerful, but he doesn't impose himself on us or override our will. He's not a megalomaniac. He's not egotistical. He's not inherently violent. He's not like the gods that humans have made in their own image, Zeus, Jupiter, Odin. He's not like Caesar Augustus or any other world leader. Even the very best world leaders look like insecure tyrants compared to God. God is powerful, but he's also humble, just, impartial, concerned for the poor and the lowly, and his nature is love. God is love. God has to be infinitely more complicated than we are, but there's a sense in which he is simpler and more straightforward. When Moses asked God his name, God answered, I am who I am. With God, there are no pretensions, fears, hang-ups, insecurities, petty jealousies, doubts. There is no vindictiveness, passive aggression, malice, or selfishness. God is power and perfection combined. And if we want to know what that looks like, we must first look to a defenseless baby lying in an animal's feeding trough 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. God has come in power, and it is very good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that the world has a warped view of, of pretty much everything, and especially power, which is why so many people even today do not recognize that you have entered your creation. You have come near to us and made yourself known. And we pray, Lord, that uh, today and all the days of our life, we will seek to draw closer to you. Your word says that if we draw close to you, you will draw close to us. We welcome you in this place. We welcome you in our hearts. We pray that you fill us with the Holy Spirit and help us to live in the light of this incredible news that we're celebrating today, that you have come to redeem the whole of creation. We thank you, we praise you, we glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.